0: Well, I have a letter to share with you all. Dear Omaha Bible Church, I have some concerns about your ministry and your pastor. Number one, five concerns, five criticisms. He's too bold and overly confident, especially while preaching. Number two, he lacks the proper credentials. Number three, he lacks emphasis on the old covenant. Too much Moses, or not enough Moses, not enough law. Number four, related to that, he's too Christ-centered in his preaching. Number five, his preaching fails to transform people's lives. And although it's not top five, if there was a number six, he's sarcastic, and that's not appropriate for a Christian pastor. Well, that's fictitious. This is blank. Um, (laughs) But it was good effect. I don't do that very often because I want you to trust me. But it's actually not fictitious, because while we've never received a letter like that, which would say as much about me as it would about you, because we're in this together, uh, each of those criticisms has been heard, has been leveled, has been offered, if you will. I have some concerns. Typically, you can see it coming. And so it's not fictitious in that sense. It's also not fictitious because those are the very concerns addressed in Second Corinthians chapter 3. And that's where we're going to be this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can find 2 Corinthians 3. And the Apostle Paul is having his gospel ministry assaulted. They're critiquing the Apostle Paul, trying to undermine the legitimacy of his gospel ministry because of those five things, as well as other things, including the sarcasm. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 3. And consider what it looks like when true, authentic gospel ministry is attacked. So that's kind of the negative, negative way to look at it. When gospel ministry is attacked would be a good title for 2 Corinthians 3. Or, or if you want to be positive, and we all want to be positive, it could just be true gospel ministry uh, defending itself, if you will. So we're going to look at this chapter today. Uh, there is a quiz. I do have a one-question quiz at the end, so you want to be ready for that. And I'm not making that up. Uh also you're wondering why we're not in Acts fifteen. This passage actually relates, it'll be a good compliment to Acts fifteen. And on Sunday mornings we've been studying the gospel or excuse me, the gospel according to Acts. We've been studying the gospel's progress in the book of Acts, and we'll get back to it next week, Lord willing. Um for the last four days or so I've been helping my oldest son Jonathan move to Colorado, and uh he got more attention than Acts fifteen did. Uh and so sometimes that's important as parent. So That doesn't sound very spiritual. Um, I didn't say, well, God told me to do this. In God's providence, I was loving my son, helping my son. And so this will be a good compliment to Acts 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians, maybe just one more thing about it is it's an intimidating book. Lots of pastors don't preach on it till later in life uh, because there's so much, I'm going to call it sanctified guesswork that has to go on. Because you have to read between the lines to figure out exactly what the criticisms are based upon what he's saying in the positive. And so it's it's an intimidating book. It's a little complicated. Um, but I think when we do a little bit of sanctified guesswork and we put the pieces together, uh, it's, it's pretty understandable. Uh, and you're going to hear some things said in our text today. You're going to say, oh, I know that verse. Oh, I like that verse. Oh, that's a great, famous Christian Bible verse. And all of that's true. Um, but I think this will help us kind of put things in order why they're there, uh, why they're in our text. So here's what's going to happen. I want us as a local congregation. I want me as a pastor and our, our pastoral staff to be all the more committed to legitimate, authentic, Christian, gospel preaching, gospel defending ministry, which is what Acts 15 will be as well, because of a passage like this. It's a great reminder, a great exhortation to us. Uh, Stand firm even when there's criticisms. Uh, Stand, hold fast even when there's opposition. Let's jump right in. No outline outline this morning, all 18 verses. It says in verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? The implied answer is no, but it's the sarcasm kind of thing. So are, uh, we've been accused of commending ourselves by these these false teachers. And so are we commending ourselves again, pat, patting ourselves on the back, congratulating ourselves again? Implied answer is no. But one reason why Paul no doubt asks that rhetorical question is because in chapter 2, he just got done saying something like this. We are always successful. The Lord always leads us in victory. Really? That could sound arrogant. The Apostle Paul is talking about preaching Christ and preaching the gospel. And you know what? When you do that and you're faithful, you're always successful. You're always victorious. No matter what, you win the war. That could sound pretty arrogant. It's not arrogant because in the context of chapter 2, in Christ, when you're united to Christ, when you're united to Christ by faith, and you're preaching the message of reconciliation in and through Christ truly, you know what you can be sure of? You can be sure you're always successful. He, he uses the verbiage, he always leads us in victory. How arrogant if it weren't for the reality of being united to Christ by faith and knowing the truth about Christ and you preach that and you know you're always doing successful gospel ministry if that's the case. Are we commending ourselves again as they've been accusing us? That's the, the, the question. And the blaring implied answer is no, you've got to be kidding me. But the sarcasm doesn't stop there. Verse one goes on to say, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And the implied answer is absolutely not. These, these false teachers, sometimes they're referred to as super apostles. Oh, just the Apostle Paul, and he doesn't have the right letters behind his name, and he wasn't mentored by, by our teachers, and, and, and we don't recognize his authority, and so he really is not qualified because he doesn't have the, the, the certification that we would expect him to have. So you shouldn't trust him. You shouldn't listen to him. And so Paul uses sarcasm and says, really? Seriously? Here, here's his response verse 2 you yourselves are our letter of recommendation and what does that mean you yourself you corinthians the, the the fact that you corinthians are christians you've got to be out of your ever loving mind if you, you they're not known for being godly they're not known for being you know great followers of yahweh it's pagan mcpaganville right it's just, it's it's paganism on steroids. They're, they're the Corinthians. The fact that you are Christians now. The fact that you are Christians and your lives have been changed even as a result of that. You want a letter of recommendation or commendation or authenticity. The fact that what we preached to you led to you getting converted. That's, that, that, that shows legitimacy. That definitely does. He says written on your hearts. To be known and read by all. The fact that you folks are Christians. We brought the gospel to you and the true gospel led you to believe and trust in Christ and be reconciled to God. That is an absolute stark point of authenticating. Sometimes I think we need to do this. We, we need to stop and realize when we're, when we're wondering about what is legitimate, what's not legitimate. Do we need to doctor up the message? Do we need to change the message? And you, what we should do is stop and say, how did I become a Christian? Well, I became a Christian because somebody had the audacity to offend me and question the legitimacy of my religion. And I didn't like it very much. God used that. To get me to open the Bible, start reading the Bible and asking questions. And before you know it, I became a Christian. I became a Christian because of the gospel. If you're a Christian, you became a Christian not because of the smoke machines. You became a Christian not because of the manipulative music or whatever it is. If you are a Christian, you became a Christian because you heard the truth about what God requires and the great provision of grace in Christ and God supernaturally worked in your heart and you came to believe it. That's how we become Christians. But we forget this sometimes. You want legitimacy, authenticity, Paul says? Look in the spiritual mirror and see that you yourselves are Christians. It's great. It's a great way of arguing about all of this. Well, continuing on with this letter emphasis. Apparently, the the accusers are stressing it so much, so Paul mirrors what they're stressing and and, and, and responds. Verse 3, And you show... That you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. I, I, I love the way he's, he's, he's carefully responding. So y- you are a letter from Christ and God, he, he used us in the process delivered by us. So it is Christ that does it, but he did use us. We're not fake apostles. We're real apostles. And then he goes on to say, let's keep going, written not with ink. We're not speaking literally here. This is figurative, written, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And now he's starting to transition a little bit to talk about the tablets of stone issue. Because that's one of the gripes. That's one of the complaints. He does, you know, the Apostle Paul, not enough law, too much gospel. Too much Christ, not enough Moses. It's no wonder people's lives aren't being changed, even though they are. Even though they are. Tablets of stone, Old Covenant talk. And then tablets of human hearts, that's New Covenant talk. And that's what he's going to get in here. He's going to start emphasizing the fact that we are ministers of a New Covenant that we preach the finished work of Christ. The old covenant anticipated. And now the new covenant brings fulfillment. He's, I won't re, we won't go to all the text, but for example, in Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant and it's a better word. That's Hebrews chapter 12 verse 24, Hebrews 9 15. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 is the old covenant or the old, old testament text that emphasizes that we won't take the time to read it but new covenant in jeremiah 31 i will write it on your hearts i will put my law within them text that you know and text that i know if we've been christians very long but i want to point out something obvious to you that maybe we don't remember sometimes and that is even in jeremiah is that in the old testament or new testament it's in the old testament i just said that so of course you know But you know anyway, It's even in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant world, it's already talking about a coming New Covenant, which assumes that one has a temporary purpose, it has a best if used by date on it. So even the Old Covenant world is anticipating a New Covenant world, so it's going to serve its purpose. So you don't just come to the New and say, it's only a new thing. No, it's an old thing anticipated in the future. So Paul's being criticized because he's a minister. He'll call himself a servant of the new covenant that Jesus fulfilled all of the types and shadows that all of that before was anticipating and he's the substance. And so stop criticizing us, calling us fake, calling us illegitimate when we're doing what the Bible, old and new Testament talks about. We talk about the new covenant. Anytime we celebrate the Lord's supper, it's the new covenant in my blood. John chapter 5 verse 46 says this. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15. They want more Moses. We want more Moses. We want more Moses. We want more Moses. And he's saying, you know what? You guys don't understand how the unfolding drama of redemption works. I'm not the fake one here. It's somebody else who's got your ear. How about verse 4? It says in verse 4, such is the confidence... Remember, I suggested to you, sanctified reading between the lines, they think he's too confident. They think he's too bold. How can he be so bold? How could he be so so strong? Always leading us in victory. Okay, he's using their verbiage in verse 4. Such is the confidence. This is new covenant confidence. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. If if there is no mediator, if there is no Christ the righteous substitute, then for us to have confidence before God is arrogance. It's, it's uncalled for boldness. If there is no substitute, if there is no forgiveness of sins, if there is no new covenant, for somebody to say to you, you know what, you can have assurance. For someone to say to you, you know what, you can know that God accepts you. How could they know that? Have you, have you seen my life? I'm not perfect regardless of what kind of show I put on. That would be arrogant and, and, and overly bold. But if it says as it does, toward God we have a confidence through whom? It's through Christ. Through Christ. Oh, that's how we can have confidence. It's not self-wrought, self-generated, because of me kind of confidence. I know that God is going to accept me one day. No. No, I know that he is because the tomb is empty. I know that he is because he said it is finished. I know that he is because of all that Jesus promised. Though you die, you will live if you trust in me. And so it's actually right for Christians to be bold and to have confidence. Not about everything. There are a lot of things I don't know. There are a lot of things that are a mystery to me. But you know what? I have confidence before God and you should too as a Christian, not because you're such a self-confident person, but because you're believing in Christ and it would be unreasonable not to have boldness, not have confidence because of what Christ has done. We have a better mediator, even as Hebrew says, well, to elaborate on this more, it says in verse five, not that we are sufficient in ourselves, That's so good to put it that way. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And I don't know if you're an association maker, I hope you are, but I love the fact that in verse 5, at the end there, sufficiency from God, and if you connect that up with verse 4, confidence toward God. So I have confidence toward God in verse four because of verse five because it's our sufficiency is from God. So confidence before God because of what's been provided from God. Salvation in Christ. You can fault Christians and Christianity for a lot of things, but you can't fault Christianity for being illogical or irrational. He's Crossing his T's and dotting his eyes. This is wonderful to see. I, I absolutely love the fact that we have sufficiency, and it's from God. We lack to be sufficient is to have enough. To be sufficient is to not be lacking. So it, it's not like you know, um, I'm going to have my good outweigh my bad because I've got some bad. But you know, maybe I can get 90% good enough. Well, that wouldn't be sufficient. 100% provision. From God, so you're acceptable by God. This is, I mean, if you're looking for something more exciting than this, I, I, I got nothing. This is what matters now, and this will matter forever. And this matters for us because true, faithful gospel ministry is going to be criticized for being too bold, prideful, arrogant, because we tell people things like, you can have Assurance. I think their logic is correct in critiquing us if there is no perfect substitute. But if there is one, it makes all of the sense in the world. In verse 6 it says, Who has made us sufficient. So notice the sufficiency theme now three times at least. To be ministers, to be servants servants ministers of a new covenant not of the letter but of the spirit the new covenant is what history has been waiting for the types and the shadows in the old covenant system uh, uh, associated with moses have now found their resting place they found their their completion they found their fulfillment and it's in christ who is the substance it's in jesus Verse six is rather provocative there. And at the end of verse six, you've probably heard it before, even if you've never read the Bible for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter kills, it says in verse six, but the spirit gives life. Do you think that's a true statement? Well, I have to say, I think it's true because I'm a Christian pastor, but, but I really do think it's true. I think most of you think it's true. It's a great statement. I mean, it even sounds great. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But then the question is, what does that mean? A lot of people have used that to mean a lot of different things. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Some weird things have been said around the time of the Council of Trent. Rome said that the letter is the Bible and the spirit is the church. Therefore, the Bible is not enough. And that's when I put the Scooby-Doo face on and go. Hmm? Doesn't seem right. The radical Anabaptists who objected to Martin Luther and others who believe the Bible is the ultimate authority said, we don't believe that. We think private new revelation like the charismatics. That's the spirit. So the Bible is the letter. Bible bad, spirit good. That doesn't seem to be the idea either. Paul doesn't seem to be an anti-Bible guy. Um, and the list could go on with kind of weird views. The reality is Paul's contrasting the righteousness of the lo- the righteousness that the law demands, and damn sinners with the work of Christ supplied by the Spirit who brings life. So think about it. The letter, law, Moses, all shorthand, the letter, the, the naked law. On its own, it says, do, you must. That just damns people because I'm not righteous. The Old and New Testament teach that. So the letter kills, but the spirit associated with Christ, the spirit of Christ with the new covenant gives life. Because Christ meets the obligations. Christ does all the right things. Christ makes atonement for us doing the wrong things. So it's a great shorthand way of saying, if you only are going to have the law, it's just going to damn you. And what you need is the spirit and the gospel to bring new life and apply the work of Christ to you. So when they're saying more Moses, more Moses, more Moses, they're saying more law, more law, more law. Paul's saying, you don't know what you're asking for. You, you, You don't get it. You actually don't even understand what it actually demands. It's unscalable. It's a great, wonderful statement. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. I hope you understand that. I hope, I hope you understand if you, I hope you understand that God requires absolute total perfection. Old Testament, New Testament, without any question in my mind whatsoever. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the strict requirement. That's what God's law requires. And both the Old Testament and New Testament say, no one can do that. No one ever has done that. No one's ever met the obligation. Read Romans 10. Read Romans chapter 3. Read Psalm 14. And so we're in trouble We need to know we're in trouble. The law is good. He's not going to say the law is bad. The law is good. It does its job. And you know what? It's going to smoke you every which way, spiritually speaking. And so that means you need Christ. One brings death. One brings life. Christ meets the obligation. It's rather clear. Now for some more great unpacking. Verse 7. Now if the ministry of death, what a way to frame it, right? Right? That'd be good on the church kiosk if we had a church kiosk. If we were a more Moses church, right? Welcome to whatever church we want to call it. What should we call it? Law church. The ministry of death. Oh, it sounds so good. It sounds like a band, but it doesn't sound very good. The ministry of death I like that he says it that way because when we're in the mode of more Moses, more Moses, more Moses, less Christ, less Christ, less Christ, you know what we're really saying? Come to Omaha Bible Church, where you we have a ministry of death. It's it's a bad look. It's a terrible look, but that's really what we're saying, because it's not going to save anybody. It's it, it, it's only going to promote self righteousness or despair because we don't meet the obligation. So a minute now, if a ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. So notice it is being brought to an end. Notice it is great. It's powerful. It's glorious, but it's got a terminus. It's got an ending on it. So we're not saying law bad. We're just saying, uh, well, actually I'd say law. Good. Mosaic system good even. Verse 8, Will not the ministry of the Spirit, he's talking about new covenant, he's talking about finished work of Christ, fulfilling the old, the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And he's assuming you're going to say what? Yes. Yes. This actually even motivates me to want to go back and read more of the old covenant. Because I can actually read it the right way and say, this is glorious, this is grand, this is amazing, this is awesome. But it's always anticipating something greater, something something more grand, something more magnificent. This is intriguing, draws me in. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Both are glorious, but one is lasting. One is a shadow, the other is the substance. Why on God's green earth would anyone want to go back? That would be nonsense, nonsense and and, and wrong, actually, as we will see. Verse nine says, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that'd be another good kiosk line, the ministry of condemnation, (sighs) but there was glory associated with it. It was great. It was true and good and glorious. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. And that is actually the kiosk sign that I want. The ministry of righteousness It's such a great way of framing things. And I realize lots of us don't know what righteousness means because it's not a word we hear very often in our culture, except for in a bad sense, people are self-righteous. So you came to the right place if you need to know, and I can help you. Righteous means adherence to law. Righteousness means you, you, you obey. Okay? Well, the problem is we don't. So when we read this and we see, we've got the ministry of condemnation. That's a ministry because you're not righteous. And the law shows you that. And then the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it. He's talking about the gospel. Well, how could the ministry of righteousness be something positive? It can only be positive in our greater context of the fact that we have righteousness in Christ. Let's work on it a little bit more. he It's as if he's saying, there's righteousness against you, law, on its own, and you're alone, or righteousness for you in Christ. Which one do you think is better? Hello, duh, right? Righteousness against you. Righteousness for you. Provided through faith in Christ. Yes, that's it. That's it. Both are law words. One leads to condemnation, Romans chapter 5. The other leads to justification, Romans chapter 5. I love the designation, ministry of righteousness it's ministry of righteousness not inside of us ministry of righteousness outside of us because it's Christ's righteousness Christ's obedience credited to us by faith which is why we have boldness god sees me as if i were perfect and i'm not a ministry of righteousness that should be our motto as a local church even if we're not going to use that verbiage because people wouldn't understand what we meant But you and I know our ministry as a gospel ministry should be a ministry of righteousness. We're all about helping people understand that they don't meet the obligation, that Christ and Christ alone met the obligation through his life, his suffering, death, resurrection, ascension. Let me tell you how you can have assurance. Let me tell you how you can be bold in your standing before God and your proclamation it's because we have a ministry of righteousness. I love it. Absolutely love it. Hope you do as well. Second Corinthians 5.19 would be a great text to look at at your leisure or leisure, whichever one you prefer. <laughs> 519 to 21 talks about this very thing. In 21 it says, For our sake he made him, the Father made the Son, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. To go elsewhere would be spiritually insane and wrongheaded. Verse 10 says, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Okay, don't check out. Don't miss this. Because now he's talking in terms of the the chronology of God's plan, of God's unfolding drama. I think it's the the storyline of the Bible, the unfolding drama of redemption. And for a time, the mosaic system was true, good, righteous, all of those things, super important, glorious, but it was always designed to lead somewhere who would be ultimately Christ the righteous. And so now that we have it for a time and it's now moving off the scene, old covenant, gone, done, mosaic system, new covenant, fulfillment. He's arguing it would always be wrong to go back, which is actually important for Acts 15. It's, it's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. You can't unsee what you've seen when you see Christ. And to see Christ will call you to not go back to the Mosaic system. It was always designed to be a type and a shadow. Indeed, verse 10 says, Indeed, in this case, what was, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Pretty strong words. Because of the glory that surpasses it. Really strong words. For if what was being brought to an end... I told you there's a born on dating kind of thing best if used by for if what was being brought to an end came with glory and it did much more will what is permanent have glory. We fault us all day long for preaching Christ all of the time, but that's how it's supposed to be. It only makes sense. It's the only way that it makes sense forever in a day. It doesn't make any sense. And I'll, I'll never tire of saying this once you have the substance to go back to the shadows. Doesn't make sense. I've used this before. I'll use it again. I don't know where it is in my house, but I know I still have it. I don't keep a lot of things, but I have this letter from my wife, Molly. I said before I got up to preach, I'm going to talk about you in the sermon today. She said, don't you dare. (laughs) I said, I've said it before. It's okay. So I had this letter from Molly and we were dating at the time and it was going to be the first time I met her parents and i was going to drive to grand island from lincoln or omaha i don't know and so pre internet pre email all that and molly has perfect penmanship i don't i can't say that anymore can i pen personship <laughs> okay i digress so like like perfect and so she writes me this handwritten multi-page letter and then it's also it also has a map because no google maps no apple maps so it also has a map on how to get to her parents house they live on a lake so she draws the lake she's got birds i mean it's awesome so um so here's what i did i followed the map i drove there nervous as a cat got there Pulled in at the bottom of the driveway and I sat there and had to, you know, get muster up the courage to, to walk up the long driveway, meet mom and dad, all that kind of stuff. You can sense it. But before I went up there, I folded up the letter and put it away and went inside to see Molly, the one I was in love with. Can you imagine how ridiculous it would be if I just stayed in my car for the next two days looking at the letter? She has such perfect (laughs) penpersonship. I would be Lulu. I'd be crazy, right? It was a great, it was a great letter. I'm not, it really is a great letter, but the substance belonged to her. I was actually there to see her and I would be crazy to go back to the letter. Oh, what a wonderful penpersonship letter. It's just crazy. So when you see Christ new covenant, always designed to be the substance to go back and pretend like he wasn't ever in existence and to read your Bible that way. And to preach the Bible that way is spiritually Lulu. It's not how it's supposed to be. We need to know that it's important that we know that permanent, the permanent has the glory. Otherwise it would be just weird. Not just weird, it would be wrong. Verse 12 says, Since we have such a hope, and I wrote in my margin there, that that hope has already been defined for us. That's righteousness graciously given. You know what my confidence is? My hope? The fact that there's been righteousness for me in Christ. So, since we have such a hope, righteousness for us, not against us, we are very bold. We are very bold. We are with God. And we have his message because of Christ. We might be accused of being arrogant, but it's actually not about us. 13 says, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. There's an end. Work is done. One sacrifice. Atonement made. Better substance. 14 says, but their minds. And so now he's going to point the finger at these Fake, supposed super apostles that don't like all this Christ-centeredness. He says, but their minds were hardened. that's, That's like unbeliever talk. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, not like you, but when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So don't you dare read even the Mosaic ignoring the new because now you have the veil off and you're like, oh, I see. This is amazing. But what we don't do is pretend like we're unbelievers now that we're believers. That would be crazy. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go back and read the Old Testament and pretend like there's no Jesus. That would be dumb. That would be contrary to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The veil is gone. Stop trying to read the Bible like an unbeliever if you're a believer. This is a big deal. This is important. Don't go back. It's Acts 15 as well. Only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, verse 15. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. That's what I'm, how unbelievers read the Bible. But when one turns to the Lord, which is true of every Christian, ah, the veil is removed. Yes, the substance becomes an interpretive key. And now it all makes so much sense. The veil is removed through the gospel. And now the whole Bible can be seen for what it's designed to be. And that's Christian scripture. 17 says, now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's a great verse out of context on the plaque on your desk. But it's even better when we keep it in context and then we make a plaque and put it on your desk. He's talking, he's talking about this great reality of understanding the gospel. He's talking about this great reality. Now you have freedom. Now you have freedom from the veil. How about that? Let's start there. Freedom from the veil. Doesn't look as good on a plaque, I know. But this is, it's the interpretive idea. I'm free to read it the way it was supposed to be read. To get the whole drama and unfolding drama of redemption, I'm free! I still have lots of questions, but oh boy, it makes a whole lot more sense than it ever did before. There's also freedom from condemnation. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, that's where the Gospel is. There's freedom. I'm freedom, I'm free from condemnation. I'm free from law against me, righteousness against me, now I have righteousness for me. I'm free! I can be bold, I can have confidence. Jeremiah 31, written on our hearts. Maybe think of it in these terms as as, as well. Now I have a new relationship to the law of God. And there's freedom in that. It can't damn me. Because I'm in Christ. And it's true. I have a new relationship with God's law. I'm free. There's another thing we're set free from. So when we read that verse, I'm going to read it this way. There is freedom. Freedom from the veil. Freedom from condemnation. And there's freedom from false teachers who tell me otherwise. Your bark is loud, but I'm not afraid of your bite. Because I'm free. Regardless of how many letters you might have behind your name. I'm free, I'm free from your strange way of trying to read the Bible. Let's wrap it up. Then I did say we had a quiz. Hope you're ready. Verse 18, and we all, I like that, all, all believers, everyone who has faith in Christ. If you're believing in Christ, you're part of the all, and we all Oh, contrary to the supposed super apostles who had a special experience or a special education and you have to come to us. No, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, that has to happen through the gospel because otherwise we're cowering in fear with many veils, beholding the glory of the Lord, all of us, how about this, are being transformed. Oh, Paul, your preaching is just about Christ not not enough Moses, and it doesn't lead to people's lives being changed. He says, you want to bet? We all are being transformed. We are all being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Regardless of how things might look, we all, if we're Christians, are being transformed, not divorced from the gospel, actually maybe to over literalize for effect by staring at the gospel. Better yet, looking to Christ, looking to him, the author and perfecter of the faith. I want to grow spiritually, pastor. How do I do it? Look to Christ. Yeah, but look to Christ. Yeah, that seems too easy, but Look to Christ. Oh, I know what you maybe are asking for. Um, how about I'll write you the prescription. Uh, it's called the book of Romans, <laughs> which is all about the gospel. It's about the height. It's about the breadth. It's about the depth. Romans begins with and ends with talking about the gospel for unbelievers and the gospel for believers, because actually that's the way to have your life transformed, not divorced from the gospel, but in and through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't like the criticisms but we need a good dose of remembering what real gospel new covenant ministry looks like so when the criticisms come it can help us to say I've heard that before I've seen that before I don't want to be an arrogant person but I'm pretty sure I'm going to be mistaken for being an arrogant person because it's happened to better people than me true or false all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness. True. That's the New American Standard translation, last time I checked, of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable. That's true. It's absolutely true. I'll go to the wall for that being true. True or false. All scripture is equally applicable to the Christian. (sighs) So you're doing this. (laughs) It's all applicable. Absolutely. We can go to other texts. Even that text would assume it's all applicable. Is it all equally applicable? So what time is the animal sacrifice thing going to happen today? Don't be late. Even our very text would have you to know that it's not all equally applicable It's all useful. It's all important. But there is an unfolding drama of redemption in redemptive history. And we're supposed to see it the way it unfolds so that we can make sanctified sense of it. And not be confused about law and gospel. And not be confused about Mosaic and New Covenant. And those kinds of things. It's all good. It's all for our profit. Absolutely. But think of all the things that the Bible commands that you yourself know were for a certain, let's call it economy time, and it's fulfilled in Christ. And if you don't see it that way, you're going to be confused about your confident standing in Christ. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for men and women and boys and girls around the globe who are trusting in Christ. And who are proclaiming Christ. We need encouragement. Please encourage us. Lord may those who don't trust in Christ. Look to him so that they can have confidence and boldness. Not in them, themselves or their own sufficiency. But the sufficiency that you provide. Please strengthen us. Help us. Strengthen other churches. Other ministries. Help them to be faithful. New covenant. Proclaiming bold ministries. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.